everyone. Welcome to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. This is Christine. Thank you guys for coming back. I hope everyone had a nice Easter or Passover, whichever holiday you are celebrating. I have some really exciting news. Last week, the podcast actually made it onto the charts in Australia, which is so exciting. And thank you to everyone that is listening in Australia. We made it onto the medicine charts, which is the top 200 podcasts in medicine, but also the top 200 science in medicine, which is the larger category. So that's so insanely exciting that on the complete opposite side of the world for me, there are people listening to the podcast and all of these amazing stories. So thank you so much to all of the wonderful Australian listeners. I am so glad that you're enjoying the podcast and that you're sharing it with other people. And on that note, I would love to say, please keep sharing the podcast. Please keep leaving reviews. Every time someone leaves a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps boost the podcast into the ratings more and then more people get to listen to it. So thank you guys again. Australia is the second most downloaded country for the podcast right behind the US. So, so, so much gratitude to all of the Aussie listeners out there. Another note is that the podcast is growing so much. I want to reiterate this. We have so many downloads. The podcast has just hit 20,000 downloads. That's in over 60 countries, as far as I can tell. And I think that may be a little bit more because sometimes I can't see all the stats. But this is episode 30, which is just mind-boggling to see where the podcast has grown from where I started with me just telling stories with old partners. So I want to say again, if you are a listener of the podcast and you have really great stories from your career and you work in healthcare, if you want to share those stories with me, I would love to talk to you. I would love to do an episode with you. It doesn't matter what your job is. If you are even remotely involved in healthcare, I want to share that story. So please get in touch with me through the Facebook page, through Instagram, through Twitter, and of course through email antidotespodcast at gmail.com. So someone else who reached out to me is the founder of the website Needy Meds, which is an amazing prescription drug assistance website with all of these incredible programs. And to talk to me about that today is Dr. Rich Sagel. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Sagel. Thank you for much, so much for having me. So you got into contact with me after you heard Dr. Howard's episode about uh, biases and stories and how some maybe kind of quack doctors have been using them to tout their wares. <laughs> right. I thought that was a very excellent podcast. I reached out to him and he's actually going to speak to our local skeptics group via the internet in a couple of weeks. That's so cool. I was so surprised when I got your email and I would love to hear more about your skeptics group because I think that's just fascinating. But in the meantime, I would love to know how you got into starting Needy Meds because this is a huge website for anyone that doesn't know. Sure. Um, my background is in family medicine and occupational medicine. And I was at the time living and practicing up in Bangor, Maine. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was a medical social worker, and she was telling me about the pharmaceutical patient assistance programs. And this was probably 20, 22 years ago, so quite a while ago. 
I had never heard of these programs and became fascinated by them and how they might be able to help individuals. I was mm-hmm. also concerned that there were people didn't know about it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think any of the physicians I knew had heard of these programs before. Yeah. And coincidentally, I had just taught myself how to design and actually code websites using HTML way back when, when it was pretty simple to do. So I said to her, this would be a good project for us to do. So she did the research and I did the coding and the website, et cetera. And that's how we got started 22 years ago, roughly. I can hear the Bangor, Maine accent. Are you from there initially? No, actually, I'm from one of the suburbs of Boston, but I lived in Maine for 25 years. I did my residency and then set up a practice there. Okay. So I had heard about patient assistance programs like off and on, you know, like for certain meds. Like if I really wanted a patient to have a certain insulin or they'd failed certain therapies, you know, you'd go on the website and you'd like, okay, we need to fill out all these forms. So needy meds is kind of a a one-stop shop for all of those programs. Is that correct? That's right. We like to think of ourselves as being the yellow pages and that's dating me because I think a lot of people don't know what the yellow pages <laughs> are anymore. But we like to think of ourselves as being the yellow pages for all these organizations. So people come to the website looking for programs that might assist them. We do not provide direct assistance. We provide the information on these assistance programs. I didn't even know about this until actually earlier this year when another nurse practitioner who actually had interviewed for the podcast was saying, oh, said you should check out Unimeds for your patients because I had been using things like GoodRx um, and then just going to sites directly. And so I, I started using it and not too long ago, a patient of mine was losing their health insurance and not for himself, but his wife was on a lot of insulin and he was really, really stressed out about it. And I said, oh, you should go to Nini Meds and check this stuff out. And it was like just this huge relief that maybe there would be something out there to help mitigate some of these costs because it's so astronomical for patients. Oh, it is. And there are many, many programs out there. We started out with the patient assistance programs and we list about 370 roughly because they come and go Mm -hmm. of these programs. So we have a very complete collection of that information. But there's many other types of programs out there besides the patient assistance programs. What we found initially is that people would say, my drug is on a PAP and I qualify, but I can't afford to see a physician. Would you write me a prescription? And of course, I had to say, no, they weren't my patients. Right. So we, from the patient assistance programs, we added a database of free, low-cost, and sliding-scale clinics. Wow. And I'm pretty sure that was our second one that we added the database. And we have about se- over 17,000 of them listed now throughout the country. Wow. So this kind of just took off. It's it's grown over time. Initially, it was just uh, my co-founder, Libby Overly, and myself. And now we have 28 employees in the office. We have data on probably seven or eight different types of assistance. The website gets anywhere between ten to 15,000 unique visitors per weekday. That's per day. And our helpline gets anywhere between four and 6,000 contacts a month. Oh, my gosh. What other programs are there that you guys have been helping with? Well, besides the patient assistance programs and the free low-cost sliding scale clinics, we have around 3,000 what we call diagnosis-based assistance programs. So these are programs that help people based upon their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. For example... There are programs that help people undergoing chemo for cancer 
were concerned about losing their hair. And there's something called scalp cooling. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh-huh. But what it is, is you put on this, there are a number of different devices on your head when you're getting the chemo and it cools your scalp and it significantly lessens the hair loss. Wow. So there's a program that will help cover the cost of those those treatments. There are a number of programs that help with medical transportation, with medically required housing, with meals, with uh, appliances, with artificial limbs, this sort of thing. All sorts of programs. And there are a number of programs that will just help people who are experiencing financial difficulties. There's many, many types of assistance. And the biggest obstacle we have this too. One is making people aware of what we do. Yeah. And then getting them to help or helping them to find all the assistance that might be available. Has this changed the way that you're practicing in your day to day at all? Well, I, I stopped practicing a number of years ago because needy meds grew and I had to make a decision. I couldn't do both. Yeah, I was gonna say. So needy meds has become my full time job for probably fifteen years. But we hope that we're influencing the way other people practice. I couldn't imagine that you would have time to do both things. But so every day you're kind of just managing the website and the 28 people that work for you. Do you do anything like politically as well to help kind of increase patient assistance programs or work with insurers to make sure that there's more programs out there for reimbursements? Well, we don't work with insurers so much because most of these programs don't help people if they have insurance except for the copay cards. You may see mm-hmm. advertised on TV where they say, you know, you shouldn't have to pay more than $25 for this med or something like that. Right. Those are the copay programs. So most of my time is spent trying to find new sources of information, reaching out to people who might be interested in what we do to see if we can get them to work with us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in practice, I never asked a patient if they could afford the medication I was prescribing. That just wasn't something I had been taught to do, and it just didn't didn't fit. And I encourage practitioners now to add that to the repertoire of questions that they ask a patient when they're prescribing a new medicine. Mm -hmm. The problem is, even if the patient says, yes, I can't afford this medicine, I'm going to have trouble paying for it, whatever it may be, most practitioners don't know what to do with the patient after that. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is be that person. So if the patient says, I'm going to have trouble, you give them one of our brochures and you say, here's a place you can look at go to their website. You can give them a call. They know every program available. And that's how we want to fit into the whole scheme of things from a professional point of view. We want to be your referral. We'll take care of those problems. You don't have to deal with them. You just have to ask the patients. I think it's also really hard as a clinician to even know what the patient can and can't afford because we don't know what drugs cost a lot of the time. Like I think we, like I know what the $4 drugs are at Walmart, sure, but I don't always know when I'm prescribing a new med what it's going to cost that patient out of pocket. A lot of times I will say, if this is really expensive, let me know and I will either try and find an alternative or we can do a cost-saving program. But if I don't tell that patient, I've found so many times they just go, oh, I didn't pick it up. And I'm like, why? You still have an infection in your ear or whatever. I could have given you something else or you now you're without your insulin. And I think a lot of prescribers don't realize that they should have that conversation. I think you're right. Oh, definitely. That's a, that's a big problem. Many patients won't tell you. I suspect that many, many treatment failures are failures because the patient just can't afford the med or they can't take the full dose. Right. And that's that's where we come in. Yeah. And then the problem compounds and then they need so much more intervention because it wasn't addressed initially. 
I don't really work in a practice where it's very low income. I guess in that way, I'm lucky that I'm, but then I'm also very ignorant of a lot of things because of it. But even still, there's a lot of meds that are denied and patients just go, oh, well, I guess I couldn't get it. And they just don't even think to tell us. That's, that's true. And it may be, you may be surprised at who can't afford the medications. Right. So that's why you should always ask. Yeah. Can you afford this medicine? Because many times they won't tell you. It's surprising, depending upon the statistics, I've seen 30 to 50% of prescriptions are not picked up. Yeah. And I think also patients may not know why you're prescribing medications. I will also say like, okay, this one is just a cough suppressant. Like you don't really need this one. If we have to choose between the meds that you're picking up, let's have you spend the money on the antibiotic versus the Tessalon pearls. You know, the other one's just more for comfort. You can get some Robitussin over the counter if you had to pick it. And that's just a very small example. But I think having the open conversations, you can make more informed decisions with the patient and they don't feel as kind of, you know, pushed into a corner or embarrassed. That That's true. And it's unrealistic for the physician to know the cost of every medication. Yeah. Because the prices vary considerably from store to store. Right. It's unrealistic for the physician to know what drug is on the formulary of every insurance program. Yeah. That one of their patients may be on. You just can't do it. Yeah. It's just too much information. I wish we had, as we were prescribing, I wish we had the costs available to us, but we don't. I have no idea what things cost. Well, the, the rule of thumb is if you see it advertised on TV, it's costly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but there's, there's no way to know because with one insurance plan at one pharmacy, it may be very cheap. And on a different insurance plan or a different pharmacy, the same drug, same dosage, same number of pills, maybe you know, 10, 15, 20 times the cost. Yeah. And through your work with with needy meds, have you had any particular examples of getting patients help specifically cover their meds? Well, we know that we help with our drug discount card. We occasionally will hear from someone who gets on a patient assistance program that we were the the entree, we help them get onto it. But most of the time we don't know mm-hmm. because there's no tracking There's no registration. There's no sign-up. There's no fee. Everything we offer individuals is totally free, and access is anonymous. So we just don't know what the patient assistance programs. And anonymous is great for the patient. I'm sure that's exactly what they want. But sometimes I'm sure you'd love the feedback of all the great work you guys are doing. We we would love to hear that. We do hear now and then, but it's it's very rare. Just I suspect you get very little communication about your podcast, even though lots of people may be listening. (laughs) Yes. Some people do communicate and it's so fantastic when they do and they're very sweet. (laughs) So tell me what's next for Needy Meds. I mean, there's such a need out there. Where do you guys want to take it? Well, before I do that, let me just tell you some of the other types of information we have besides the three that I mentioned. Yeah, please. We have close to 2,000 what we call our application assistance programs. These are people in all throughout the country that help people find and apply to the program. So they'll do one-on-one, face-to-face. We have over about 2,000 coupons, copay, and rebates listed on the website. This is another way to save. We have a couple 3,000 camps, scholarships, and retreats based upon diagnosis. Oh, really? We have, I think it's 2,500 state and county programs that help people. And then we have, I forget how many now, uh, 
quote, $4 generic programs listed, as you referred to them. Mm-hmm. These are the programs that offer medications at a set rate that's pretty low or maybe free sometimes through the pharmacies. The discounts come from different places. The patient assistance programs are sponsored by the pharmaceutical manufacturers. The copay cards are sponsored by the manufacturers. Um, but the $4 generic programs are generally sponsored by the pharmacies themselves. So that's all, I think that's all the information that we have on the website. Um, again, it's all easily accessible and people should go and check it out. In terms of where we're going, we're moving into education as much as we can because I think that's important. One of the things we jokingly say is we'd love to go out of existence for lack of need, but I don't see that happening in the near future. <laughs> yeah. We run a few other websites. One of them is called Safe Needle Disposal. And this is a website that has information on how to safely and legally dispose of used home-generated shops in every state in the country. And we have a listing of close to 4,000 drop-off points throughout the country where you can drop off your used shops. So that's an area that we're expanding upon. We have another website called Health Web Navigator, which has reviews of health-related websites. Oh, cool. Okay. I'm sure you've you've seen lots of websites where there's a lot of junk on there. Yes. <laughs> and we tr- we try to sort them out. It's still growing. It's still in a beta version, but it's something that we plan to continue working on. And we have a lot of projects in the planning stages looking to get the funding we need to gather the information, design the website, and put it up. One of them is called Health Savings News. And this is a place where people will be able to read about various ways they can save on their health care costs. Mm. I'm sure you as a as a provider know or, or see people who spend lots of money that they don't need to spend, whether it's on tests that they insist on, medications they insist on, who knows what. Yep. And I'm working with a couple of other physicians and some other providers, and we've come up with a list of about 60 tips so far. We're hoping to make this a live website in the near future where we plan on having an email newsletter portion of it, a website that would go into the into a lot more detail about these tips, hopefully a podcast, maybe some videos to raise awareness because one way we can cut healthcare costs is for the patients to look at what they're doing, their behaviors and say, do I really need to do this? Yes, this is a huge, huge problem. We see it all the time, especially in primary care where someone walks in and goes, I'm fatigued. I want 7 million tests. And I go, I don't think you need that. And they say, why? I want the best care imaginable. And you go, yes, and I want to give you the best care imaginable. And me giving you the best care imaginable is saying no to you because it's not necessary. And a lot of times I can tell certain things just by either my physical exam or your previous lab work or certain things will tell me other things. Like if your CBC is normal, I can tell that you don't have a B12 deficiency or an iron deficiency or something else. Like I don't need to order a zinc or a chromium level on you, but patients will ask for those things and they don't realize that that is incurring costs because they don't see the price tag right in front of them necessarily. Oh, definitely. When I was doing a lot of occupational medicine, we have lots of people coming with back pain, probably number one problem. Mm -hmm. And everybody wanted an MRI. Yes. (laughs) And I would explain to them, I said, the only reason you get an MRI is to see if you need back surgery. If it showed something, this indicated surgery, would you have it? And patients say, no, no way am I going to be cut. They say, well, why get the MRI? Right. And trying to have them become informed and educated partners in the healthcare is very difficult. Right. 
and explaining to people that I'm not withholding things because I'm trying to be some evil gatekeeper. It's because I'm trying to do what's best for you. And it's it's such a hard thing because people think you're like this big brother, somehow authoritarian figure that is just like out there with like trying to keep you sick. And it's this weird kind of dynamic that people have or this idea of you. And I, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm trying to help you. <laughs> and so I do a lot of education, especially when it comes to imaging of like, you know, you don't have any neurological symptoms. Like even if you did have a, a little bit of tendonitis or something that did show up on the MRI or a small meniscal tear, the treatment's physical therapy anyways. So let's start with the treatment and see how you do. The MRI is not going to change my treatment plan. So why waste all that money? And MRIs are very loud and scary. <laughs> right. And you hit upon an important point there with any test. How is it going to change the treatment? Yeah. If the test is not going to change the treatment, why do it? Exactly. Another big area that we need to educate people on is screening tests. Why do you do screening yes. tests? What are you looking for? People are confused as to why screening tests come and go, why the PSA was going to be this great thing and now it isn't. Yes. Even with mammograms, the, the different recommendations. Right. I, I like to tell people they should they need to understand there's no such thing as breast cancer. Breast cancer does not exist. On the other hand, there are multiple different cancers that occur in the breast. And that's why certain screenings are good for certain types of breast cancer and really don't seem to make too much difference in the outcome with other types of breast cancer. Right. I have women that come in all the time saying, I had a friend that was diagnosed with breast cancer at 26 and now I want to get screened at 30. And I'm like, not appropriate. And I'm so sorry for your friend. And that's very horrific. But, you know, one, your breast tissue is so dense at this age. There's a high risk of false positives. You know, you don't have any family history of this to make me think that there's a genetic component. We should be doing breast exams and other stuff. And people think, well, you're trying to kill me. And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't want you to have to get a false positive, go through an ultrasound, go through a biopsy, go through the the hell of having to wait through all of that to then find out it's normal. That's that's so expensive and so stressful emotionally. True. And there's the, always the risk of an adverse outcome from a benign, what we think of as a benign procedure. Right. So it, it's, it's very difficult. That's why for a long time I felt that a complete annual physical is a waste of time and money. Yes. Yeah. I'm lucky to practice in a place now where we do the physical, but we don't order a full panel of blood work every single time. If you had blood work last year and you have no risk factors, we don't they don't want us doing it. So it's that's great. <laughs> right. And people don't understand that science and medicine in particular is always changing and we're always learning more and we do the best we can with what we think is the latest and greatest and most appropriate recommendation now, but it's going to change. Right. I know in my many years of practice, when I was a resident, there were certain things you had to always do that you stopped doing and became something you never do. So things change. Sure. But a lot of people don't don't understand that. Right. Like everyone back in the day had their tonsils out. Now we're finding that maybe we shouldn't be doing that all the time. Oh, definitely. Or even a routine EKG. Yeah. You know, a lot of places don't do that. I, I've asked many people, when you're doing a complete physical, how often have you found something listening to somebody's heart that was unexpected? Yeah. It just rarely happens. Yeah. But that's what patients expect. Right. So are you guys doing anything to educate providers about the needy med services? Are you going to medical schools or NP schools at all? We try hard, but it's tough to get it in. It just 
is not high on, on people's radars as being important. I think that as healthcare costs continue to climb, patients need to take the, the lead on this because of the high deductibles and the high copays. Even if somebody has insurance, it it still doesn't cover everything and there's high out-of-pocket expenses. So patients have to take the lead on it. Right. They have to look at you know all the medicines they're taking or think they need to take and do they really need to take them? Are they just treating a symptom that doesn't make any difference? Right. You, they need to understand the dictum. If you take these pills, you get better in a week. If you don't, it'll take about seven days. <laughs> and that's you know so true so often. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start using that one. <laughs> well, it it's true. Yeah. You know, most things get better with time, no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. I like to say the best doctor you see is the last one because then you get better, even though time may have been the factor that caused the healing. Yeah, I had this argument all the time in a previous uh, place that I was at that they were very um, Z-Pack happy, I'll say. And so, oh, you don't feel good. Here's a Z-Pack. And it was like, the it was the worst thing ever. So everyone was like, well, the other guy gave me a Z-Pack whenever I had a cold just in case. And I would take it and I would feel better in five days. I'm like, yes, but that's the duration of a viral illness. Of course you felt better in five days. It had nothing to do with Z-Pack. They go, well, how do you know? I go, that's not how this works. <laughs> I pull my hair out all the time. And it's the exact thing of the intervention did not help you. It's just how things progress. <laughs> Well, it's how to progress, and people forget there's a potential for harm. Right. I don't like to tell the story, but it's it's a true story that the only patient that I know of that ever died from a medication I prescribed was amoxicillin. Oh. And my policy was whenever I prescribed any medicine, I always gave patients verbal warnings in terms of the well-known side effects and said to them, remember, any medicine may cause any side effect in the right person. If you ever develop any trouble breathing or swallowing, take no more pills and go immediately to the nearest emergency room. Right. And this was a woman in her 30s who had no allergies, was given amoxicillin. I forget what the diagnosis was. And the story came back. The first dose, she felt a little tightness in her throat. And the second, she went into respiratory arrest and died. Oh, my gosh. So any medicine has potential for serious side effects. So you need to take that into account. Yeah. Yeah. So you had also, to transition from that light topic, um, you had mentioned you had a group of skeptics, and Dr. Howard is going to talk to them. What is all about your group of skeptics? Well, many years ago, my wife and I went to a conference in Las Vegas on skepticism, where there were about a 1,000 people who showed up. And on the flight back, we decided we needed to do more than just go to conferences and do the reading and be skeptical. So we started a local skeptics group. It's called Skeptics in the Pub, and they're all over the world, these these groups. Most of them are informal, where people get together and try to have a presentation and a discussion. So from my point of view, skepticism is taking a rational, critical, and scientific view of things. Mm -hmm. Not trying to be cynical, but to be as I said, rational and critical and scientific. I think that's a good distinction between skepticism and cynicism. And as you look at things, you begin to see that there's not a basis for a lot of things that we do. And of course, being in healthcare, I see that all the time in in healthcare where people do. Mm -hmm. Looking at a lot of the alternative practitioners. Yeah. um, There's real problems there. You know, a lot of it makes no sense. And the only harm it does is it empties people's wallets Although it may delay appropriate treatment, it may cause people to die because there was treatment that they ignored. Just like Steve Jobs, 
from what I hear, the pancreatic cancer he had, he might have survived if he had surgery right away. Yeah. But he wanted to do a natural way and not be cut upon, and it took his, took his life. Yeah. I have so many thoughts on the <laughs> skepticism and, and, and alternative medicine. And I talked, obviously, a little bit about it with Dr. Howard. But what do you think is one of the biggest kind of alternative medicine grabs for people currently? Well, I think the ones, there are, there are a few of them. One is homeopathy. Mm-hmm. One is chiropractic. Another is acupuncture, naturopathy, all these things which there's no scientific basis behind it. I've posed the question to many believers in alternative approaches and say, can you show me a well-designed study of some alternative practice that at the end of the study, the people who were doing it came to the conclusion that it was not helping and it should, the treatment should be stopped. Now, this is practitioners who believe in the therapy. Mm-hmm. So a chiropractor said, we did this study on whatever with chiropractic treatment, and it made, made no difference. And the reasoning behind that is these alternative therapies, even if something does seem to make people better, they can't be right 100% of the time. Right. There has to be some times when they're doing something wrong, which is true in, in Western medicine. We know we're doing wrong things. It's just figuring it out. So that the biggest thing is convincing people. I'm sure you're familiar with evidence-based medicine. I don't know if you've heard the term science-based medicine. Science-based medicine takes what you're doing and goes back a step and say, is there a prior plausibility that it makes sense? Could taking a homeopathic preparation, is there any science behind the fact that people get better? I think people forget that you're going to get better for most things no matter what you do, and it just takes time. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit and say that I think a lot of the people that come in with the homeopathic meds go, oh, well, a lot of medication started from herbs, so why can't this work? And and I'm not supporting this at all. I don't really support herbal medicine in that patients say that to me. And so I say to them, yeah, but it's not regulated. I don't know that that's actually the concentration of that herb. And opium came from poppies. That's a natural medication. Do you want to start taking that for something? Um, it just because it works doesn't mean it's not harmful and you don't really know what you're doing. It's, it's also not regulated. And I have this conversation all the time. And especially because I am treating a more affluent population, I think they are more prone to these kind of interventions, I guess, or these ideas. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that you're right. People feel they want to take some control. And there's a lot of confusion. You know, you said homeopathic medicine with herbs. Well, that's not homeopathic. Yeah. Homeopathy is a dilution process. And I found that if you explain the history briefly of homeopathy and how these potions, I don't I hesitate to call them even medicines, but these potions are made, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. There's a fellow comedian, an Australian comedian by the name of Tim Minchin. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yes. And he has a saying that says, what do you call a herbal medicine that works? Medicine. Right. And that's true. There's no denying that we've learned a lot from natural preparations. But what happens is you take whatever it may be, the herb, you analyze it, you try to purify it, you find the active component, get rid of the other stuff, and then you have a real medicine. Right. You don't know what you're getting. As you said, there's there's very little oversight. And many of these alternative therapies that work have been found to work because they're contaminated by with real medicine. Mm-hmm. Most of the medicines that the herbal or preparations or supplements that work for erectile dysfunction work because they contain real medicine in them. And when the FDA cracks down upon them, they have to stop selling them. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Oh, yes. If you 
if you read about this, you'll see that there's lots of of cases of this happening. So you're right, you don't know what you're getting, and most of it doesn't work. Now, sometimes it may work, and you can't argue with success in a way, but you can argue with the cause of the success. There's a physician writer by the name of Harriet Hall who came up with the term tooth fairy science. (laughs) And what she proposed, which is true, is you could do all sorts of wonderful studies on the tooth fairy and come up with correlations between the age of the child and which teeth the tooth fairy comes to take or how much the child gets, finds under the pillow and find different variations based upon all sorts of factors. And that's evidence-based. But what you're forgetting is you go back a level to the science and say, wait a minute, there's no tooth fairy. Right. So all the statistics you come up with are totally meaningless. And we find that a lot, I think, in, in the alternative practitioners. It is tough to admit to, to deal with the fact that some people say, well, I went to my chiropractor and I got better. But you don't know what would have happened if you'd given it more time. And that's what I meant when I said earlier the best practitioner is the last one you see. You take back pain, for example. What's the normal treatment course of back pain? Well, generally, most people get better in three to four months, no matter what you do. It doesn't make any difference. So the person comes in after suffering back pain for a couple, three weeks and says, my back hurts. What should I do? And you say, well, let's try some anti-inflammatory. Come back in a couple, three weeks. They come back, no better. Well, let's try some PT and come back in a month or two and getting a little better, but not remarkable. And you try a couple of other things. They go and see a chiropractor and then in a couple of months, they feel wonderful. Mm -hmm. Was it the chiropractic treatment or was it time? And they happened to hit the chiropractor at the right point when time was curing the problem. Right. I think also the problem for me as a provider is there's so much of this. There's so much I guess, white noise of alternative medicine, it's hard to keep it straight. I mean, I I don't even really know the definition of homeopathy versus a patient coming and saying, oh, I saw my naturopath and they recommended this and I saw this, this alternative provider. I'm so busy trying to keep up with Western medicine that I'm actually using and then I have to counteract all of this alternative medicine that this patient's coming in and like, well, I I did this research on the internet and they told me this is good. Tell me why it's not. And I have to, uh, I don't know anything about this. And there's, I'm just inundated with all this alternative medicine. It's hard for us to combat it because it's just, it just keeps coming at us, I guess. That's true. And there's good and bad information on the web, as you mentioned. There's one website called Science-Based Medicine, which has a lot of good information about what seems to be the latest appropriate treatment and what isn't, and a lot of the alternative therapies. So I recommend that website. There's a podcast, uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Have you ever heard of that? No, that sounds great, though. (laughs) It's uh, probably the most popular skeptical website, I mean, podcast. I think they said they have over 100,000 downloads per week. Well, they certainly beat up my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've been around for a long time. And the, the lead is a neurologist at um, Yale. Oh, cool. Um, Steve Novella. And they cover a lot of medical topics, but other topics also. There's a whole world out there of skepticism. It's amazing the, the alternative facts as the term that we currently use, um, of what people believe in. Where I live here in, in Gloucester, I'm on the Board of Health, and we have an issue with people wanting to stop the fluoridation of the water. Oh, gosh, yeah. With all these erroneous facts that they have, facts should be in quotes. Right. <laughs> uh, and trying trying to get that, or the anti-vaxxers. Yep. And you know the group of people who's most likely to be an anti-vaxxer? It's white, 
edu- well-educated, upper-middle-class women. Yes, and it, as a white woman, I'm very offended. Like, what is wrong with you? I Like, I come on! <laughs> it's difficult. It's very difficult to, to talk to them because they many of them are so close to this, so they don't understand the science behind it. I've discussed with some people who said, well, too many immunizations all at once. Yeah. And I would say, do you know how the schedule is determined? It's not arbitrary and go through the process. Yeah. Sometimes it helps. My feeling is if I can make a chink in somebody's armor about any of these these topics, that's all I can hope to accomplish at the time. Yeah. If I can get them thinking just a little bit, that's all I can hope to accomplish. But I know a number of people f- through our skeptics group over the 10 years we've been doing it have gone from being believers to being good thinkers about these things and realizing that the ideas that they had, there was no basis to them. Yeah, I think we should be looking at the whole world critically. And it's okay to look at vaccines critically, but then go, okay, the critical thinking here is, yes, it's backed up by science and thousands of studies that prove that they're safe. That's the critical analysis of it, not the anti-vaxxer movement. Do you find some people confuse skepticism with supporting alternative medicine at all or alternative facts by saying, oh, I'm skeptical of big pharma or big government or whatever? Oh, definitely. It's a word that that gets bandied around a lot inappropriately because skepticism and skeptics come look at things a certain way and accept science. I like to draw the distinction between the word belief and accept. Mm -hmm. So I tell people, I don't believe in in gravity or I don't believe in how antibiotics work. I accept them as science. Belief implies um, a, f- a leap of faith where there is no proof. It's unprovable. Right. That makes complete sense. It's Do you find people will like show up to a meeting and then they realize what you guys are about and then don't come back <laughs> at all? There were some. Definitely there were some. And that's okay. You know, we we can't convince everybody. No. But I, but there are people, it, it gets people thinking in a different way. Yeah. And the more you learn about it, the more you doubt. In some ways, many people have agreed with the statement, skepticism has ruined my life because you don't know what to accept. And you can't, another thing you learn from it is you can't be an expert in everything. Yeah. I accept human component to global warming. I can't prove it because that's beyond my area of knowledge. <laughs> I can know a little bit about it, but I can't be an expert in everything. And sometimes experts are wrong. Right. That's true also. Yeah. I think uh, definitely any kind of practice in medicine makes you realize that you cannot be an expert in anything. <laughs> the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> that's that's very true. And things the toughest thing for people to accept is is recommendations change as we learn more. Right. It's not that the initial was a bad recommendation. It was a recommendation based upon what we knew, what we thought we knew at that time. Yeah. And things just change. And you you see people say, well, medicine doesn't know what they're talking about because the recommendation for eggs changes from time to time. Oh, yeah. There was a big article that just came out this past week about that. (laughs) Right. So that we can't know everything and things are going to change, but we're trying to fine tune things. One of the problems I think we have with medicine in this country is we have lots of great treatments, but we don't know who to use them on. So we do them for everybody. Yes. And we have, I think, a system that for certain people, their insurance allows us to pay for that as opposed to some nationalized systems that are have more checks and balances about what they're willing to pay for and more guidelines and for those sorts of things. Definitely. In- in the past, in England, homeopathy was covered and it's no longer covered by National Health and the last homeopathic hospital closed. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. 
Yep. So that it it's changing, um, but it's it's a difficult area because people have these beliefs and they just stick with them. Uh, you've heard the term confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that has a big play in this, I think. Yeah. And the alternative practitioners can spend the time with people. They listen to people perhaps better than Western practitioners. And that's one thing they have over us, but they don't have the science behind them. Yeah. It's similar to like psychics. They have the ability to kind of read the patient and be there for more time because probably they're not being covered by insurance. So it's all out of pocket and they can pick up on subtle cues and play on emotions and then patients like that because it's a more tailored approach as opposed to running between five patients an hour in a primary care practice where you're just in and out. It's a different game. It's a different game. And a lot of people really believe this and they're not out to rip those to rip people off, but others do. There's a difference between cold reading and heart reading. You've heard those terms? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With psychics and there have been exposés and traps they've, where they've caught people who, with hot readings because they'll research them. They, they will find out about the person so they can come up with all these ideas. And cold readings, it's, it's a skill, but it's a skill I think that most people can learn if they want to Yeah. in terms of picking up all those subtle cues that you mentioned, throwing out so many guesses that eventually you hit one. Yeah. And then people remember that and forget all the misses. They remember the hits, forget the misses. Yeah. And I think just to go back to something that you had mentioned a little bit before about the way that medicine changes, also, you know, a patient condition can change so dramatically in a brief period of time that people seem to say, oh, we don't know what we're doing. I was talking about this case with someone uh, not too long ago. I had a patient that had come in for like flu-like symptoms and he was an older gentleman with like CHF as well and cough and stuff. And so, well, I don't think you necessarily have pneumonia or CHF exacerbation, but you're definitely coughing a lot and you seem a little winded. Let's get a chest x-ray. And the chest x-ray was fine. And four hours later, he decompensated completely, went to the ER, and he had a significant pneumonia on a, a second chest x-ray because of the flu. And sometimes the clinical picture can change that dramatically. And it wasn't me being wrong. It was that's how medicine goes. And people can say, oh, you know, Western medicine was terrible. I should go see this other practitioner because of it. But that's just kind of how it works sometimes. That's a progression. And people don't understand that imaging studies don't always translate into what's really going on. Right. One of the things I learned early on is you never treat a test, you treat a patient. Yeah. That's every paramedic knows treat the patient, not the monitor. <laughs> that's right. You have to look at the total picture. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Going back to Needy Meds, I just want to encourage people to please check the website. Needy Meds is somewhat of a misnomer. You don't have to be needy to benefit from some of these programs. Going back to the patient assistance programs, some of them will help people who have four or 500% above the FPL, the federal poverty level. So that means a family of four making eighty dollars to $90,000 would be eligible for some of these programs if they meet other requirements. There's so much information on the website that people are missing out on. So I really want people to go. It's needymeds.org. And every everything is there and it's free. And when, although we get ten to 15,000 visitors, I'd love to get twenty to 25,000 a day. <laughs> I really hope that if there's any clinicians or nurses or medics or whoever that's listening to this, please tell your patients about Needy Meds. And I, you have an app too. Is that correct? There's a smartphone app. We offer a drug discount card. And there's a smartphone app version of it. The website is responsive, so you can use it on a smartphone or a tablet to find information. We are about to 
announce a discount on uh, durable medical equipment, canes, crutches, those types of items, and diabetic supplies of 40%. We worked out a deal with a supplier. So that's going to be available very shortly within the next couple of three weeks. Oh, wow. There's lots of ways to save on healthcare costs, and we try to have them all. That's awesome. So it's needymeds.org, correct? Needymeds.org.com will get you to the same place. Awesome. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I appreciate this opportunity. It's been fun having the conversation with you, and good luck with the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to speak with you. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed this awesome interview with Dr. Sagal about needy meds, all of the amazing work they are doing. And if you want to get in touch with me, again, I am always looking for guests. I would love to hear from you, especially if you are practicing medicine outside the United States. I would love to know what that's like and share that story. Always looking to hear from foreign country EMS providers and see how that differs from what we did here in the United States. So reach out to me at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Facebook is Antidote Stories and Medicine Podcast. And there is the great Facebook group. So please join that. And there is Twitter, which is Antidotes Pod. Antidotes Podcast is the Instagram page. And as always, thank you so much to Peter Hopkins for our amazing custom music. I hope everyone will check him out at PeteSingsThings.com or Peter Hopkins on YouTube. Have a great week and I will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye.